So I'd like to welcome everybody again and just say thank you for being here. Um, my name is Danny, and I'm the, uh, the newest member on staff here at Cornerstone as the pastoral intern. Um, I'm in my third year at Gordon-Conwell, so about to... Gordon-Conwell is a theological seminary up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and um, I'm in my third year about to graduate later in May. Um, for obvious reasons, Pastor Eugene couldn't preach today, um, and so... It's, I guess, my joy to, and my honor to be able to preach God's word, but also my blessing and privilege to be able to support um, our pastor by, um, you know, relieving him of those responsibilities and to be able to do this in his stead. Um, So yeah, let's just go straight into it. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage from Matthew, and if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Um, Otherwise, you can just look up on the screen as we read along together. Uh, This comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. Let's read this together. Matthew 12, 46 says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray together really quickly. Father, we pray that you would Enlighten us, Lord, open our eyes and our ears to know your word. Also, we ask, Spirit, that you would give us that hungering for it. Um, we, want, we want to just have that deep desire for your word more than anything else. Um, and I want you to just place that in our hearts at this moment. And we pray that all these things would glorify you and that it would be to the joy um, of your people as we, as we learn, to learn, learn to know and to, to worship our God. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to go through this passage from Matthew that we just read together. And um, maybe some of us don't, but I mean, for those of us who have been ex- uh, exposed to the Bible and Christianity, we know that there's gen- there are major four, the New Testament begins with the four gospel books, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so as we look at these gospels, they all um, are sharing the story of Christ, but, and they have their similarities in that, in the, in the story that they're sharing, but they have a lot of distinct differences that you can see pretty clearly and highlight as well. So for example, um, out of the four authors, some of them may use uh, certain vocab words or sentence structures or use, uh, you can tell that their grammar is kind of different. They're using the Greek in a different way. And you're like, okay, that must be uh, Mark style. Um, Some of them have different perspectives. So they're looking at the story of Christ from beginning to end and being like, in which way do I want to record this and give it to the people to read? In which, what what was really important? What are these important themes that I should highlight and share or write or record? Um, So amongst these differences, there's, in terms of our passage today, there's an extremely important one that has to do with Matthew. And that is that Matthew, as opposed to the other writers, he uses conflict there's a lot of conflict in Matthew. And so what he does is he uses conflict as this sort of fuel. It's like kind of the fuel that just pumped into the engine and helps the story go along. And the story of Christ from beginning to end, it just kind of pushes it and pumping it. And so I like to think of Matthew as kind of like the best storyteller because, well, you know, why do we like movies, right? It's like there's, there's our protagonist who we, we, we want to relate with. And then, you know, there's a conflict that comes into his life and some issue happens and we just want to see how he can overcome that, you know. And, and so Matthew has this, um, I guess, this characteristic about him and his writing style. <clears throat> Excuse me. And 
So if we look at the whole book of Matthew, especially from the beginning, we have the birth of Christ, right? And then John the Baptist is born after that. He gets tempted in the wilderness. Then we have the Sermon on the Mount from five through seven, right? And then he starts healing and, and, and teaching and with a word, just healing people uh, from their diseases. And chapter 12 is the very beginning in which, boom, conflict hits. And to no surprise, it's with who? The Pharisees, right? So in Matthew chapter 12, what happens in the very beginning is that Jesus is walking with his disciples and on the Sabbath day, and they're hungry, and they start picking grains, and the, and the Pharisees are like, yo, you can't allow your disciples to work. That is against the law. Later on, a few verses later, there's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus heals him. And again, the Pharisees are upset that he's working on the Sabbath. So here's what it says afterwards. This is right after he heals a man with a withered hand. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So here we have Jesus' ministry and his teaching. It doesn't simply uh, threaten or jeopardize his reputation, but now the things that he's doing threatens and jeopardizes his very life. Now he has people out to kill him. So you, we have to think and put our, kind of our Bible reading caps on by picturing ourselves to be the original audience, right? The people who Matthew intended this to be written to. So it starts off with the virgin miraculous birth of the Messiah. So boom, chapter one, and we're like, this is huge, right? The Messiah is born from a virgin. Afterwards, he continues on and he preaches the best in the sermon ever told. Then this, this miracle worker, this Messiah starts boom, 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 healing people left and right. And so this momentum is kind of building and it's, it's starting to boil and come up and up and up and boom, conflict. There's like this huge roadblock that stands in the way. Pharisees are out to get him. They want to kill him. But strangely, and so what's very particular about this chapter is that as it just comes tumbling down and roadblock after roadblock starts hit, it concludes with conflict not with the Pharisees, but with his own family. That's really strange. Verse 46 says, while he was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So this isn't like a genuine question, right? He's rhetorically, he's asking a rhetorical question, which in a way is disrespecting and rejecting his own family, his own blood. Recently in September, at the beginning of the semester, I started this class. And what we did on the first day, we went in a circle. Well, we sat in a circle, we rearranged the furniture and my professor gave us these name cards with a big Sharpie. We wrote our names and placed them in front of us, and then we started sharing. So I know that sounds like kindergarten, but I swear Gordon Conwell is an academically rigorous institution. We do have difficult classes, but occasionally we do sit around in circles and we share. And one of the questions that the guy, or not the guy, the prof my professor asked was, other than your relationship with God, what are the top two uh, most important things in your life? So just two things. Just think of it really quickly, and we went around and shared so out of a class of roughly, uh, I'd say like 30 people or so, everyone but one guy said family. So, you know, for example, like I had this guy sitting next to me. He's like, oh, you know, my name is John. And uh, the most important thing in my life is my wife, Becky, and our, our daughter of six months, Abby. And then the next guy said, oh, you know, I really enjoy my family. My parents are really supportive. <laughs> this is a true story. This other guy on the other side, he's like, oh, yeah, I really like the outdoors. So I like being outside. Like... 
Everybody's sinner, like rotten, right? No, but I mean, he, he kind of knew. Uh, he was just kind of implying, you know, everyone else is the same family, but still, we, we thought I was kind of whack and judged him appropriately. But uh, let me ask you the same question. Um, just take five seconds. What's important to you? Boom. I'm fairly certain that, what, 99.9%, maybe one of us is an outdoorsman tier too. But most of us are going to say family, right? Like it's important to us. Maybe some of us struggle with our family. It's something that breaks our heart. Whenever people talk about family, it's like hard. Like I have a terrible relationship. Maybe some of us don't have family. Nonetheless, I still feel like even with those circumstances, you would still value it highly, right? Now, for the ancient Jews, I want to argue that family was, is, was arguably much more significant to them than it is to us today. Now, I'm not saying that we don't value it. Like I just said, it's probably in our, if not number one, it's in our top two, right? But to ancient Jews, the family was everything. So in your family or your clan, your ancestry is where you found your status, uh, your future occupation, your value, your worth. Essentially, your identity was wrapped up in your family. For us as 21st century Americans, right, like, you know, that's true in some sense, but we also, you know, wrestle with a lot of uh, desires of independence or, you know, we want to have our own voice. Uh, some of us hate being in the shadow of our siblings or of our parents and we kind of want to do our own thing. And, you know, maybe that's not all of us, but as a whole, to the ancient Jews, like family was everything to them. John Calvin, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he says that family was considered to the ancient Jews of the sweetest things in life. This is him quoting, me quoting him saying, he said that he was talking about the family uh, of the ancient Jews and how they considered it to be the, the sweetest things in life. Now, if that's true, and the fifth commandment of the 10 commandments also says honor your father and mother, then what is Jesus doing here? He's going around and he's building his ministry, right? And this momentum is starting to build. He's healing people. Just taught the greatest sermon ever. And yet he's rejecting his own family. Isn't that contradictory in, in a way? Let's walk through the rest of the gospel, Matthew and his teachings and see just what exactly is going on here. We'll rewind a little bit to Matthew 4, 21. It says, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father. That's important. They didn't just leave their boat. They left their father and followed him. So here we have Jesus coming, and there's a family situation. He says, no, follow me. Let's go again. Matthew 8, a few chapters later, 21, it says, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this story is particularly significant because burying your dead was an unconditional responsibility for the Jews. Unconditional. So much so that priests, those whose occupation, their office, their, their, uh, their job description required of them to be ceremonially clean, even they had to bury their dead, which made them unclean. So that's how significant that is. It means everything. It's like, it's not even, it's like breathing. Like you have to do it no matter who you are. And what does Jesus say? No, follow me. That's it. Let's continue. Matthew 10, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Again, teaching on family and its worth. Let's go to the last one, Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So it's pretty clear that Jesus' message was very consistent from beginning to end, right? And what I want to make clear is what he's not preaching, what he's not teaching is say, dishonor your family, disrespect them, they don't mean anything. But what he is saying very clearly is that nothing can come before following God the Father. Nothing. No matter how important it is to you. There is nothing in comparison. Period. So it's, it's really particular and strange. And, and I hope that if we, again, get into the mind of, of the Jews, that this, this passage is really unique. It's awkward. It's, it's even offensive in a lot of ways. So again, Jesus' ministry is building power, right? It's growing and growing. And the conflict hits. Boom. His life is being threatened. He has enemies. And then as that's moving along, moving along somewhere, it just like goes way off course. And his family is the one in conflict now? Like... Uh, <laughs> That's strange. It, it, as we, if we look at the text, if we don't really think about it, it seems normal, but it doesn't belong there almost. It feels like, like, why is that story even recorded? Essentially what Matthew is doing, he's saying, look, look, let's, let me get your attention. Jesus is marking this clear divide between who is his family and who isn't and showing his people what values you ought to have what his values are and what, what that's followers of Christ, what we should value. Verse 50 is extremely clear. It says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. They're standing outside waiting for him and he just completely says, no, these guys. And as they, as the disciples represent those who do the will of the father, they're my true family. See how like radically different Jesus' views are than ours or the culture? Essentially, no human feeling, emotion, tradition, culture, customs, nothing comes before what God commands. This passage, I hope, helps us to see that bearing the title or the name Christian fundamentally changes the way that we understand life, the way that we view things, the things that we value, how we approach everything. You know, don't we say that a lot? Like, oh, God changed everything. Like, the moment I met him, everything changed. But did it? It's extremely difficult sometimes, right? And the reason why I think Jesus is using this family relationship over and over and over again in Matthew is that he knows that it's the most important thing to them. And similarly, I think it's the most important thing to us. And that's why I think it's so relevant because Jesus is not just saying, oh, like, you know, your job, you know, that can't come before me. But so many of us are going to change our careers multiple times and don't really care. I hate being in the cubicle every day. But our family, the thing of most importance of value to us, Jesus is saying that is nothing in comparison to what you need to do in following me with your whole heart and being. It's a shift of perspective. So what does this mean for us, right? How does this like practically look? If, if everything that he's saying here is true, if that is true, that means that if you have an unbelieving family member or loved one, that the stranger in this room who's a Christian that, or, or, the, or the Christian that you 
dislike or butt heads with or is annoying, they're actually more your family than your own family member. For those of us who have non-Christian family members, I I do myself, my father, some of you might have a sibling or whatever, that means you guys are more my family than my dad. How serious is that? I'm not a parent yet, and I won't be for a while, but I, I can't even fathom what it's like to have a child and to see them grow up, to see them maybe potentially become an unbeliever, and to think that somebody else is more my family than my child. It pushes and stretches us to the brink of understanding who is defining you. Is it Christ or is it the culture at its extreme, right? Let me ask you these questions. Are you more a sibling of Christ than an heir of Christ or more of a sibling of your real sibling? Are you more a child of God or a child of, insert mom and dad's name here? How do you define yourself? So I think, at least for me, when I was kind of wrestling with this passage, I was thinking a lot of, Man, that's, that's so extreme, right? Like, my initial reaction, and I think maybe for a lot of us, because I know we use this kind of same language, is to think, wait, God, how could that possibly be true if they're my flesh and blood, right? Don't we use that language a lot, blood or flesh and blood? I think about, like, my, let's say I have a brother, an older brother, and we argue all the time. Like, I hate my older brother. But then when it comes down to something serious, I'm like, no, he's my flesh and blood. I'll defend him to the end, right? Or our parents thinking, you know, they're so, like, uh, strict and annoying, but in the end, they're my blood. Like, what can I do? Right? Or we use that language a lot, even with friends. That person is, my best friend is so close to me, they're like my blood. Don't we use that language a lot? Of significance, they're like my blood. And what this passage, I think, emphatically kind of shouts out to me from the pages, is saying, what significance does blood have other than being a red liquid? The only blood that ever matters and ever will in this side of eternity is the blood of Jesus Christ, which is shed and reconciles sinners to the Father. That's it. Verse 49, it says, uh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> in verse 49, Jesus stretches out his hands and points to his disciples and says, they are his true family. Whoever does the will of the Father is his true family. So, again, I want to bring our attention to the fact of how this kind of challenges us in a way that opens our eyes to see how serious it really is to, to, to call yourself a Christian and what that means for you. Not just like what I do, like, oh, I have to do QTs today or I have to go to church, but just from the very foundations of who you are, how you view yourself. When you look in the mirror, do you see, oh, this is so-and-so, this is Danny, he's a student, you know, I'm a student, I'm a, I'm a fan of, you know, Boston sports teams, or, you know, I'm a son of so-and-so. But when we look in the mirror, do we immediately think son of God, daughter of God, reconciled to the Father, whose values comes alone from, from this book? And this passage, I love it because it challenges me and it rips me apart because it says, hey, who, whose eyes are you looking through? This thing here, which sometimes acts as a paperweight and collects dust, has to be your glasses, the thing that you see through, that every page of this is, without it, I'm literally blind. 
not merely glasses, it's like eyes. And, and these are the things that Christ is calling us to value. His values. Not even the best of cultural, even like morally good values. It's all from that. It's from the Bible. It's from Christ's teaching. Again, Jesus speaks about family time and time again and emphatically has this like strange conflict with them here because he knows how much how important it is to us. And essentially, at the, I, I, didn't, I didn't write up like, oh, points. So uh, let me give you my three-point sermon, right? Because you're only allowed to have three for some reason, apparently, when you preach. Uh, I didn't write them. Oh, go home and call your dad and say, hey, dad, you're less of my family. No, like, Nothing. What I do have is a question, or multiple rather. Who defines you? What do you value? Who are you actually? How do you understand life? And from where does that understanding come from? This passage screams out that question. What defines you? Or better yet, who? We call ourselves Christians, right? Who defines you? Is it yourself? Is it the culture? Or is it the book? Is it scripture? So my prayer for us as a church is that simply we would, we would have that prayer. Lord, help us to see through your eyes. Help your word to be my very eyes that I am literally blind without. Help us to follow in a way that isn't just mere repetition of Christian customs and good deeds and morality, but gospel living where it literally contradicts everything in the world and all cultures and contradicts us and the way that we live in an offensive and conflicting way, powerfully conflicting, but when the end gives us real life. So again, as I close today, I don't have practical application for you guys to do, but what I do hope is that that question will be ingrained in your hearts And that as you wake up and as you live and as you think, oh, okay, I need to do this. I need to declare my major. Wait, what job am I going to do? Or if I'm in a career right now, am I going to switch? What city should I live in? Like, that's all secondary. How do you live and who are you living for? Again, following Christ comes before literally everything. That is my prayer for us today. That is my prayer for you, for me, because I know I'm absolutely terrible at it. And I hope that as we read the scriptures, it'll, it'll, it'll just oh, like shake us up in a way that just like shows the big question. Who defines you? Where do you find your identity? For the Jews, it was found in family, ancestry. For us, I don't know, our jobs. My prayer is that it will come alone from scriptures and the gospel will be exactly that fuel that, fu- that, t- that leads us to even take a single breath or take a single step or make a career decision or important decision every day. Let's pray together. I want to just give you guys um, just a short amount of time uh, just to pray briefly. And, and, and let's, let's, let's focus on that question. Where is your identity found? Who, who defines me? 
What is my identity? They're simple questions, but they're extremely profound and important, right? Let's ask God to give us clarity in that. Let's help him to be patient with us as we kind of wrestle and as we lose focus, as we kind of go off the wrong ends. Let's let's ask the Lord to, to be our guide. Let's pray that together. I, w- I want to just open this time up for you and, um, and I'll, I'll close us. Gracious Father, uh, I know I've been using the word identity a lot today. Um, but I can't get my attention off of it. There's nothing else that I can really uh, focus on. Because how critical is it for your people to know that their identity is found in you? And we, we ask that you, and we're thankful that you are so patient with us. We thank you for your mercies as you're new every morning. Because so often our identity is found in such worthless things and found in the world or even in our selfishness. But Lord, just like in the way that you combated this cultural, uh, I guess this cultural idol in, in family structure and identity found in family, Lord, you said that, that it's completely different. You made this clear divide between who is for you and who is against. And Lord, we want to see that, not as just like a teaching, but as something extreme, something that we can't uh, be lukewarm about. Lord, I, I pray for myself, I pray for my friends in this room that you would help us to in our very being, at the foundations of who we are, find that the gospel message is everything. Not our jobs, not our majors, not who we date or marry, Lord, that all those things are secondary. They're all good, and we pray that we use those things as well to honor and to bless you. But would it always be far, far, far behind following you, obeying your word, and living faithfully for your name and for your glory? We pray that they would always be first. So Jesus, open our eyes today and every day as we go home. Help us to see a little bit more clearly. Help us to be challenged daily. Would your word challenge us? Would we challenge each other? Would we think about it? Would we wrestle with what we allow to be in our lives and what we don't? Would we wrestle with where we put our money? Would we wrestle where we put our time? Thinking in the mindset of a one who identifies himself in Christ Jesus First, would that be the foundation with which we move our steps? Lord, more than anything, we thank you for your cross. And we thank you that you've made a way for us. And Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that reconciles us to the Father, that washes us white as snow. Lord, with it, we are nothing. Without it, we are nothing. Lord, we love you. And we, we, we want to know more and more what it means to be a Christian and where our identity is found. So teach us, O great teacher, grant us wisdom, and give us the strength to follow you with everything that we got. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.